Hey, what's happening, everybody? You're listening to another episode of the Supermercado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. This is a podcast where we share and discuss the very best in video game music. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. Boy, do we ever share and discuss the very best in video game music. That is exactly what we have in store today. I know sometimes <laughs> we kind of give a little qualifier, especially whenever we're playing like something that we've worked on. We're like, oh, well, normally we do this, but, but I right, feel like yeah. today's episode is just, I don't know, textbook this podcast and textbook what we strive to do on this show, which is just to highlight some absolute classic VGM and explore things that um, I think in this case are very familiar to many of us. It's a nostalgic episode and it's a nostalgic idea, a series of episodes that we're going to want to do once in a while. We go back to some of our favorite music, classic music that a lot of you are very familiar with that maybe we haven't listened to and talked about for a while. Yeah, and I think in addition to just... Uh, the aspect of the amount of time that's elapsed because we have been doing this podcast for over 10 years now and there are so many you know beloved series and topics that we kind of haven't circled back around to in a while right so that in and of itself I think is enough reason to do this episode but I think also sometimes music that is so iconic and classic it can actually Mm -hmm. ironically go unexamined a little bit I feel that way sometimes about like if you think about certain songs by the Beatles that are just so famous and iconic that we kind of stop even hearing it as music as a song it's just like such a something like let it be for instance it's like it's so famous and ubiquitous sometimes you forget like oh someone actually wrote this and there's like a whole process and logic behind this piece of music I think if both Will and I were to think of some of our favorite series when it comes to video game music across the board, Castlevania is definitely going to be an answer from both of us. Yeah. Starting from the very first title, I mean, it it really came out of the gate swinging with a really particular style of music and and emotion and sense of fun. Uh, And it's really fascinating today. We're taking a look at the three NES Castlevania titles, the first one, second one, and the third one. And how they have similarities, how they have differences, different composers brought in for each one. Uh, Just really fascinating example here. And I think one of the strongest series musically on the NES, for sure. Well, what to me is so interesting is the NES Castlevania games, they actually, they remind me of like the Adam West Batman TV show, where it's like kind of crazy and trippy to think that like the first incarnation of what would go on to be like a in the case of Batman you know a long-running character that's a big part of film but it's almost like the first incarnation of it um is this sort of like ironic tongue-in-cheek comedic angle towards Mm -hmm. it and that's how I feel about Castlevania it's like there have been so many iterations of this series in the decades since that are very earnest and taking the lore and the characters in the world very seriously with a with a fittingly gothic sort of setting but what's amazing is the original Castlevania is so self-aware that it's comprised of all these horror tropes well and then the music is just so fun sometimes it's dancey but and sometimes it's just goofy but it can also be scary too it's just a great balance and it's really fascinating how many different composers uh, were able to successfully find that balance on the nes yeah i think that's a good point i also think that the music to castlevania 
is almost more inspired by something like Thriller by Michael Jackson, where it's yeah. like it, it has winks and nods to the fact of certain it's gothic fun horror archetypes. It's like yeah, but it's like horror, yeah. it's still pop music. It's still dance music. It's still very yep. much rooted in popular music of the 80s. And I think that's the thing that one of the reasons why this music is so nostalgic is because it both feels like a part of its time, but because it's also doing this like horror cliche thing, it sort of makes it more timeless than the actual pop music of that era. That is so true. And today it's all about NES. So all three of these titles were playing the NES versions of the soundtrack. Um, and so, yeah, we're picking really some of the best music from each of these scores, particularly with three. We're not able to play every piece of music, obviously. So we had to condense this. Um, but let's start off with the first title, Castlevania. It was first released in 1986. The composers that we have on the first game, we obviously have Kunuyo Yamashita and Satoe Terashima. Now, Terashima is the only composer that worked on more than one of these three titles. Uh, she also worked on the second game, too. So that's interesting. Other than that, every single title had new people. And I believe she composed the track that we just played in with, Stalker. Which was Stalker, in parentheses, Armory. And again, that is the NES version of Castlevania. Let's keep going to one of the most beloved and popular themes in the entire series. It comes back so many times, not just in this series, but in other video game series too. This is Vampire Killer, parentheses, Courtyard from Castlevania. guys listening to the iconic vampire killer it's fun to start uh with this score and really think about how technically we're going to get pretty advanced by the time we get to castlevania 3 obviously we're not playing the vrc6 version of that playing the nes version but you know a few years really was a big change in how people approach nes music implementation wise this is very primitive you have those long straight notes you don't have much vibrato really don't have a lot of bells and whistles here it's just about the catchy music you know that yeah. you know, the, the melodies the harmonies the grooves just all of that coming together giving you that sense of imagination and you really are able to hear past the primitive sounds um, i mean one of my favorite things about castlevania 3 is is the mix uh, i think the composition is maybe even stronger than castlevania 1 but it's it's really at home for the NES, and, and they're able to to kind of implement it in a way that feels really confident. Where this, it is it is fascinating to start here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's only natural that things are going to evolve, and as people have more time with the tech, they're going to learn new tricks, learn ways around, you know, getting the most bang and for different your buck. people, more people. I mean, Castlevania Three has a, a longer list of composers, a bigger team, if you will. So yeah, that makes sense. But I think a big part of the change uh you know castlevania is a is a relatively early um nes or famicom title whatever you want to yeah consider this is it. 86 uh the original release is 86 
And so what's interesting and sort of fascinating is that, you know, I, I sort of think of Castlevania is one of the most important Konami titles and really important in, I Absolutely. think, establishing the sound of what that studio you know because we've talked before about how there's really this iconic capcom sound and there is an iconic konami sound and sometimes the konami sound is a little bit harder to describe but there are moments uh within this track even oh this is the I perfect like, blueprint yeah they if there lay ever the is any a <laughs> perfect konami blueprint like, it's this track the, the moment in this piece of music that is so unmistakably Konami is that dun 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 yeah. dun, dun where you get those it's open 80s rock power chords. Yeah, it's it feels so good. And there's a reason why this is really up there with one of the most popular VGM tracks for bands to cover. Uh it's probably in the top five, really. And and there's a reason for that is because everything that you need is there. And if you expand it, and if you have, you know, a little bit more harmony and a more fleshed out rhythm section, stuff like that, solos, whatever bands want to do, it just feels really good. And there's a lot of ways to change this. We've heard that really good kind of jazz fusion take on this where they're really altering the chords. There's so many ways to do this and it almost always works. Yeah. And I think part of it is, it comes down to those basic elements. And it's one of the things that's strongest about NES music is that clarity, the economy the of ingredients. Because yeah. it's one thing just to talk about the melody, but the entire three-part writing of this piece is really perfect in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite things about the Castlevania series is the relationship between the two pulse channels, that oftentimes you have these... You can call it a melody, but it it requires more than one pitch at a time to be Mm -hmm. what it really is. Oftentimes that means like you have a static, you know, top voice and the moving line is the lower or middle voice. And that's that's a technique that happens um, fairly commonly throughout the NES. But I think that kind of part writing that feels quasi-classical and has this sort of sophistication to it, this feeling of a little bit of counterpoint and things. That's something that hadn't really been explored very much up until this point on the NES. And I think this yeah, the popularity and, of this game, but as well as just the incredible work of these two composers. And what I find really inspiring is the other composers that worked on two and then three really were inspired clearly by what Yamashita and Terashima did with this first game, because in some ways they expanded those influences and they went harder right. into all of them. Uh, really, and to me personally, what's so awesome, I obviously I love the first Castlevania. It's a very short soundtrack, but to me it feels like there's this evolution that happens from one to two. I feel like in some ways a lot of those things are even stronger in two. And then three, it really feels like the peak. For me, three is maybe like the peak of <laughs> NES music in some ways. I absolutely yeah. adore Castlevania three. But let's keep going because we have a lot of music to get to today. Uh, let's now move on to Wicked Child which is also known as Upper Yard from Castlevania, composed by either Yamashita or Terashima.
You guys are listening to the very 80s Wicked Child from Castlevania. And again, this first game was worked on by Yamashita and Terashima. And I wanted to give a couple of shout-outs to some other Terashima credits because I think a lot of us you know, on this fans of this podcast are very much aware of other Yamashita games that we've celebrated and talked about. But uh, Terashima is a little bit more of an obscure composer, so let's talk about some of the other things that she did over the years. She also worked on The Goonies, The Goonies 2, Russian Attack. Uh, like I mentioned before, she did also work on the second Castlevania game, Stinger, uh, as well as the NES version of Life Force. Uh, I'm not sure if she was a composer, but she, I think, did a lot of the arrangements uh, of, uh, for that game. Well, and what a perfect choice because both of these composers have clearly demonstrated that they have a great command of these primitive tools and how right. to utilize these. I mean, what constraints? You can only have three simultaneous pitches just enough to imply a triad. Uh, but yet the kind of music that they're able to create within these limitations give us a sense of genre, give us a sense of... That's one of the things that I was trying to get to earlier is like there's something so sophisticated about this first Castlevania because it's coming in with all this confidence and irony I mean, there's no doubt about it. This is a cutting-edge NES soundtrack. 1986, it's a very early title. And, and the confidence, we talk about confidence with the later entries that we're going to get to today, but a lot of confidence here in going for a specific, you know, sending up a specific style, but also combining other styles together. Just a really cutting edge soundtrack in every way. Well, the other interesting thing is this game came out the exact same year as Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera, mm. which was a huge smash hit, um, both as a show, but also as a soundtrack. Oh, yeah. And that the music for that took sort of a similar approach actually where it's kind of like hmm. this gothic um kind of you know classical old feeling music a lot of opera influences and things from puccini and stuff but right. combining that with 80s like rock and pop and so i feel like th it can't be a coincidence that both of these things arrive that's a cool in the thought. same year and I think you're right. i've always felt like there is some sort of linkage between the musical language of phantom of the opera and the musical language of especially the early castlevania there's no doubt about it that these composers were influenced by so much music that was happening at this time, which was the mid to late 80s, you know, film scores and, you know, popular music, rock music. I'm sure they were versed in classical music, as a lot of composers are. So it's really cool to hear all of those things coming together. Well, and the one thing that we on a score just like didn't talk about, because it's it's almost so self-evident, is just how incredibly striking and strong that principal melody is. I mean, I love the whole yeah. opening intro and vamp that to really build the energy in the sense of like a classic 80s montage. But when we get to that, you know, dancey, the economy of notes in there, there's so many pitches that are repeated and the there's so much repetition within that phrase in general. I think that's you know, one of funny, the things Will, that makes it so catchy. There's a later track title called Monster Dance from the second game that we're going to get to eventually but that should really be a genre that's what this is this is monster dance yes <laughs> it feels so that's good a great point I uh, let's move agree. on to a more creepy track at least compared to what we've heard so far this is walking edge also known as castle swamp
You guys are listening to Walking Edge, also known as Castle Swamp. And I've always had a thought about this track, particularly the first couple sections of it. I, I feel like it would really come alive, uh, arranged and performed by a real maybe string ensemble or a fusion group of, uh, you know, like orchestral rock where you have some strings and maybe some rock instruments and rhythm section. I would love to hear that, actually, because uh, obviously they're going for a really striking and creepy sound with the harmonies they're choosing. But having it on these pure <laughs> pulse channels without any vibrato to it is is pretty jarring to hear and i think that's intentional however i do think i i would personally love to hear and i don't know if i've heard it before like a really good arranged performed version of of this when you get to that chorus it, it just opens up to that again <laughs> that monster, monster dance, dance yeah, that we totally. love well and what's interesting too again it's like all this music is it works on multiple levels because oh, it has totally this tongue in cheek fun dancey quality yet compositionally there there's a lot of sophistication under the hood particularly in a track like this i feel like the use of the tritone interval is a huge motif of this entire it's composition the star. yeah it's yeah. the star of the piece for sure as far as it being used in you know straight homophony where like the top yeah. line and and middle line of the two squares are these parallel i mean uh, yeah tritones. it's about that creepiness but it's not trying to, to it, flirt with it it's trying to really hit you over the head with it but one of my favorite moments is when you open up to that chorus melody the chord progression is a minor one to the sort of six which you yeah it's kind of the flattened six it's easy to think about things in the context of being c so you think of c minor to a flat major except it isn't purely a major triad it's also implying it's more like a flat seven or a flat yeah, dominant, it's a dominant. Seven. yeah it's and really that dominant cool sound that dominant and interval, it's phantom of the opera isn't it well that dominant seventh note, that G flat or F sharp, is the tritone away from yeah. the the tonic pitch, and it has. We have a lot of gothic associations to that interval, but the cool thing about it, we also have a lot of associations to like progressive rock and metal. So it's kind of what's cool about evoking these types of uh, musical qualities is that just by using them completely purely by themselves, you already get these dual connotations, something classical, but also something at yeah, the and time that's pretty more amazing contemporary. That while listening to this really primitive hardware in 1986, it's very clear the other outside genres that are coming together for these composers. Like you can hear everything. Your imagination is just running wild with this music. Let's move on to, for me, a bit of an underrated jam. I love this track. And um, so for this first title, we're playing the majority of the score. For the second game, I think there's a few we had to cut. And then for the third game, there's quite a bit of tracks we don't have time for. This is Out of Time, Upper Terrace from Castlevania.
you guys are listening to Out of Time, and I think in 1986, at least for the original release of this, one of the early examples of that delay effect done on the NES, for sure. It's really striking, and it just, again, it really gets your imagination going, having both of the Pulse channels being used for the same material, but one of them shifted in time, and so it has the, this effect of this, you know, cavernous echo. It's really cool. And it's also a great example of, you know, when you do that, now you're limited to two essentially monophonic lines, but right. it's the quality of the part writing and that descending bass line that descends by step and mm-hmm. a lot of it chromatic. Uh, that's again, we're getting into the territory of dual connotations. You know, a descending chromatic scale has a lot of precedent in classical music, and oftentimes that type of uh, movement was used to describe tragedy, sadness, death, even. Yet in a pop music context, <laughs> that kind of <laughs> descending bass line is a huge part of so much music of the 60s, 70s, yeah. 80s. It's, it's, I think that's an advantage that the NES has. Right. It will evoke not just one other area or one kind of piece of music, but it might evoke feelings of multiple different genres. And simultaneously. It's so abstract. The sounds don't necessarily make you think of a rock guitar or a violin. They're kind of this weird, you know, neutral sound and so it i think it allows your imagination to fill in the gaps that's maybe my favorite thing about nes music yeah and i think that happened for the composers themselves clearly in their creativity and it clearly happens for us as listeners well the last track we're going to play from castlevania one today is nightmare which is dracula's quarters You guys are listening to Nightmare, and I hear so much progressive rock influence on this track. It's kind of that symphonic rock, that rock bands that are inspired potentially by 20th century orchestral music. I know there's a lot of them out there, and that's what I hear in this track. This is another one that I just personally haven't heard, like a really impressive rock performance of this, but if anyone knows of one, send it my way, because I think this would be a match made in heaven for a full prog band. Yeah, and you could expand on it. What's interesting is this is one of the few tracks we've played that doesn't have some dancey, you know, chorus section that becomes a a monster dance. Um, But what's interesting, (laughs) so this one is the most probably explicitly classical, but yet again, like you're saying, it still has all of these rock connotations. And that's one of the things that's so great about Castlevania is it's a really consistent aesthetic from beginning to end. You know, don't, I mean, those kind of hits are all over rock. The rhythms. Yeah, and in addition to that, the opening progression, the bum, 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 it's this, you know, um, chromatic third relation it's the same kind of chord progression of so darth cool, vader's man. theme yeah. uh, and those two minor chords that are they don't necessarily reside within the same key so it, there's that 
that feeling of it's a very simple sound really of just two minor triads but because they're not related to the same key you actually get uh it's even more dark than two diatonically minor chords like if you think right. of going from e minor to d minor well they exist within the same key but if you go from c minor to a flat minor well there's no it's key so in which surprising. those two chords are yeah, both yeah it feels in. like someone is hitting you off your balance you know but not you're not dead you're just you're kind of dangling and then eventually you catch yourself that's how it feels to me when I hear a chord progression like that. Right. Um, so yes, amazing job, Yamashita-san and Terashima-san. Let's see how um, Terashima, as well as two other composers, would take that and run with it for the sequel, which came out just a year later, originally. Uh, this was composed by Kenichi Matsubara, Satoi Terashima, like I mentioned, as well as Koiji Murata, and it's Castlevania II, Simon's Quest. Let's start things off with The Silence of the Daylight, which is the town stage. guys listening to a banger it's the silence of the daylight from castlevania to simon's quest we have matsubara terashima and murata and in my opinion what happens going from the score of one to two is it really feels like they're taking everything to the next level it feels like there's just more meat on the bone here musically yeah. a lot more to sink your teeth into and definitely implementation wise we have maybe a couple years have passed because um with a lot of these titles there was some original release and then uh, at least in the case for maybe one and two the nes version maybe came later so it's possible that this this nes uh implementation was done in either 87 or 88 possibly um but it sounds so good so confident there's just a lot happening it's that classical rock mix that we've been talking about but yeah it's really taking it further amazing track one of the biggest advancements purely from a technical level is now the inclusion of the dpcm drums we have kick drum and snare and yeah i mean that in and of itself partially because of the sort of one bit compression that happens it ends Mm -hmm. up filling out the entire sonic spectrum and it gives a lot of beefy low end and low mids pleasing isn't it yeah i mean uh, uh, in many cases that would be something you'd want to avoid but i think in the case of the nes which has these very basic almost sine wave like sounds having something that's sort of rich in the frequency spectrum really helps to fill out the feeling of the music is, and in addition kind of though, punk rock like it's like i don't know listening to that it's like oh that really sounds awful but it oddly works in a way that defies logic yeah it gives it that that grit that feeling that makes it more explicitly rock music but i yeah. think like you were sort of alluding to i think every aspect of the composition has really taken it up a few levels i you agree can, you can hear the influence even the beginning of this track the that's sort of like a dorian modal thing it seems like it's really it's hinting a little to more vampire killer it's similar pitches but yet when yeah. this track opens up the all of the things that we were celebrating in the first game are here but it's almost more impressive now. Yeah, everything about Castlevania 2 
uh, as a soundtrack, there's more. There's more to love. And it's not anything against Castlevania 1. It's taking what was good about it and giving you more. Well, <laughs> the and lengths are a little bit to... longer. The chords are maybe a little bit more advanced. You have the, the funky drum beats. It's a little bit of a bigger score. It's just every single thing is, is more. <laughs> yeah, and if you listen to the arranging, you know, again, this is just three-part writing when it comes to pitch material, yet... When you listen to this, you feel like you're hearing a piece of music. It doesn't feel like anything's yeah. missing. Where when you listen to Vampire Killer, especially now, as great as the composition is, it it feels sparse. It's not as it full. feels yeah. like there's oh, that's rhythmic energy that is not being tapped into. But when I listen to yep. the music of Simon's Quest, I sort of am not left wanting for anything more than what's being presented. No kidding, man. Well, let's move on to one of the most popular and beloved pieces in the entire series. Bloody Tears, Street Daytime. I love this piece of music. It's Bloody Tears, of course, from Simon's Quest. We have Matsubara, Terashima, and Murata. And as many amazing covers as I've heard of this, and there's a lot of great ones, there's frequently things that are changed with some of the notes, some of the harmonies. It's it's actually more common for covers to change and tweak certain things, and who knows how much of that is intentional or just getting notes wrong. I think it's very but I would, rarely intentional. <laughs> I would love to hear a note-for-note, note, incredibly authentic cover of this because you really shouldn't change a single a, note yeah, of this. Yeah, it's a it's perfect composition. Perfect. What's interesting about video game music is because of the nature of how it was constructed back then, the limitations, they had to be so thoughtful of every single element and they were fighting against this, you know, precious memory and, you know, it, the music was not considered by any of the developers to be one of the most important aspects of the game. So in addition to the technical limitations of the hardware, you also had the limitations of you know the cartridges themselves and you didn't want music that severe. took up too much memory so they had to come up with really clever workarounds in the same way that you know all departments um, in video game development back then had to come up with these clever workarounds and I think that uh, that pressure in that it's almost like being in a pressure cooker I think it led so many composers to write some of their best music. I think it's so true I mean this is a track that we could we could do one of those episodes where we focus the entire episode on it and, and yeah, that's so impressive so much for detail. NES there's so much going on here I love the harmony I love the interaction when it comes to the NES channels it's so inventive the instrument switching is very expressive yes. I love the different instruments I love the use of octaves there's just so much imagination in, in this track right and it really is hard to have a band capture this track i mean i will say that like there's something about this nes original that is it would be almost impossible to capture yeah how special it is with well, any and, other ensemble yeah you can't overstate the amount of what's happening in terms of the arrangement i mean carl mentioned instrument switching but it isn't just 
like duty duty cycle changes. Um, it's a lot it's, more. It's there. It really is. It's almost like phrase by phrase. It's constantly changing articulation, and so it makes exciting. it sound like it's a large ensemble in that it's almost like this Hockett style piece where you know you're having the violins do this, and then the brass are answering. Or if you think about it in a rock context, it's like you have these two lead guitars that are panned hard left and right, and then you have this, you know other lead guitar that's panned down the center or it's like mm-hmm. if you there there'd be multiple different you know style equivalents to this kind of instrument switching but it's such a brilliant way to make these three channels sound like they're way larger than they are again the it's dpcm so drums help to fill out the rhythm section in such a great way it's crazy how full this piece feels when you're just talking about the technology. Right. But when you're also talking about musically, the part writing, how rhythmically there's these little holes and these puzzle pieces that interact and there's every every moment there's something exciting right. happening. Well, And, and like, it's truly a match made in heaven in that way. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's something that composers of this era were so strong at was being able to evoke and imply whether it's harmonies or things in the arrangement, um, music beyond the scope of what's actually possible. And if you yeah. think of the opening of this, you have that great sort of pivot tone riff. The one it keeps the going back down to that note. Most and, common trademarks of the series. Yeah, and it's something that in a rock context, it sounds like you know that sort of hammer-on guitar. It's also common for harpsichord music too. Yeah, yeah, it's common for harpsichord and organ music, and it's common for you know classical string instruments as well. So it's another example of you're getting that dual connotation and that's what's so hip to me about like the nes castlevania music to me is so cool in a way that no music for the rest of the series is because it's this tongue-in-cheek it's it's not taking itself seriously but it actually has this kind of humor and this sort of like it's just really badass how it seems like they kind of don't care in a way it's what i think is cool about like the monkey island games for instance where like the, the games are well made and they have good characters, but they're so funny and meta and jokey that it's almost like th- they're throwing away something that they could take in earnest yeah. and they're using it as a tool just to make a joke. And that's how some of this music feels. And I really respect that kind of not being so precious with something that clearly took a lot of craft and intention oh, yeah. to design. I mean, these composers took this so seriously. I mean, nailing this particular sound better than anyone else could have i mean you you can't get better than a track like bloody tears just absolutely 10 out of 10 let's move on to the track i alluded to monster dance which is night bgm here we go guys listening to monster dance one thing i wanted to mention um you know looking at the length of these scores actually one and two quite similar both very very short uh not a lot of tracks and also very similar when it comes to the loop lengths too Uh, a lot of these tracks in in castlevania 2 are very short loops as castlevania 1 music was castlevania 3 was really the score that expanded things 
drastically when it comes to the size and scope of the score and the length of the loops. And so that's interesting to think about that as we're proceeding in this playlist. But yeah, Monster Dance. I would say another underrated Castlevania 2 jam. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's like, this happens with every console generation. You listen to... Uh, or not even just listen, but you notice the games that come out early in a console's life cycle and the games that come out late in a console's life cycle. The graphics are better. The sound yep. is better. Everything is, is push at it, a higher level. Push it, push it, yeah. And it's not you that, gotta do that the hardware hasn't improved. It's the same console that it was But you you've know, been working it with it for years. Yeah. yeah, they understand ways of how to <laughs> fit more into the cartridge. And I mean, yeah, we're definitely in for that when we get to Dracula's Curse. But what's so cool yeah. about something like this, just dramatically in terms of how it works in the game, and I know that Simon's Quest is sort of a divisive title. A lot of people don't like it. A lot of people have some nostalgia for it, but it does, It kind of its central gimmick is this day-to-night transition, which right. is, I mean, I think it's very ahead of its time for having something like that, because that's a huge staple of a lot of games in the decades that would follow. Um, but mm-hmm. what I think is really cool is, you know, whenever you go to night in Simon's Quest, the monsters become stronger. It, the action is a lot more intense. And what I love right. about the intro of this track, it's so dissonant and disturbing that it immediately gives you that feeling of dread. Yet, rather quickly, it opens up into another dance Monster party. Dance. <laughs> it's always fun. Yeah, I mean, there's never going to be too long of a period of time when they're just creeping you out. I mean, you got to have some fun as well let's move on to dwelling of doom man that would be a really good metal band name wouldn't it dwelling of doom which is mansion bgm here we go that NES swung rock shuffle feel. It's so, so good. Again, this is another track that is just oozing with the Phantom of the Opera influence. It's so cool. Dwelling of Doom, Mansion BGM. I love this track. This is maybe my third favorite from Castlevania 2. Yeah, it's really outstanding. And I mean, again, all of the things that... Yeah, all of the things that we celebrated before, the the incredible rhythmic interaction between all of the elements, the instrument switching, the harmonies, the blending of genres. Again, you get this 6-8 feeling, and it feels like a rock shuffle because of what the rhythm section's doing. Yet, if you step back a little bit, you know, 6-8 is a sort of dance meter that I think we associate with a lot of older classical or kind of folk music yeah. and so it has but, this sort the, of european the drum beat, though, quality that's what's so it. cool is if you listen to the drum beat again it's like prog rock doom to cat to doom to cat to there's a lot of you know 70s 80s grooves like that so i love how they're able to make it feel contemporary while also still making it feel classical and timeless it's well and also it's a knockout track the contrasts here if you listen to the bass line it is so smooth and legato there's very little in the nature of attack almost all of the bass writing in the original castlevania was a lot shorter and more punctuated that's true well it's more that sound it's like expression stuff well some of my favorite 
miscellaneous instruments are in Castlevania 2. I particularly yeah. love that uh, staccato instrument, and it's definitely a specific instrument because it has this attack that then cuts off, but then you hear a little bit of decay, you know. Right. Oh, it's just so so much personality with yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I think they were learning on what you can do with the squares and they're leaning into the strengths of the channels. You know, it's like the triangle channel is Truly. really basic. It doesn't have any dynamic control. It doesn't have any timbral shifts. So using it in this smooth legato way and leaning yeah. into that, it makes it this sort of more eerie, almost theremin-like fluid sort of movement. But it gives it this synth bass, pure open quality. And yet by having all of this articulation detail all of these short notes and these portamento scoops and everything in the squares you get this really full feeling because you have this contrast you have a really lyrical smooth element and you have a really plucky element and by playing those things at the same time it's it sort of tricks your brain into thinking that wow there's just so much happening here you would never think that the composers are being limited and i think that's just because of the genius of the composition there so much genius the happening. Of these I, elements. I'm having an absolute blast today, and and we haven't even gotten to my personal favorite score in the whole series, which we're gonna get to next. So I can't wait for that. Uh, let's move on to within these castle walls. Outstanding writing here. These arpeggios, I think, were very influential to the composers in Castlevania III when they wrote something like Prelude. Um, just really beautiful note choices and what, what chords are being implied. Creepy and beautiful. Yeah, I think one of my favorite moments in this, this is another example of that sort of chromatic mediant shift the third yes. relation between but doing it harmonies. as an arpeggio ooh, so right it, doing it as an arpeggio and it there's more to it than just that it's it's kind of it's it's really interesting the way the harmonies they're sort of somewhere in between film music and rock music yeah and yet when you get to that final section where it starts being harmonized in what sounds like parallel fourths, it could be fifths, so but it, it starts opening up the harmonies and you start getting all of these pitches that are outside of the implied key. And again, we talked about that chromatic median shift that's something that it is in and of itself evoking two different keys. So, this track is is really one of the strongest examples of this great NES technique where you have a delay effect. So you have you know, the second pulse channel shifted and creating this echo cave kind of vibe. But then eventually you don't have to do that for the whole piece because you start adding some harmonies. You've already had that effect and you don't really notice that that's going away when the harmony comes in. And it's just a really brilliant way of making it feel like you said, like you have more channels than you actually do. It's just, oh, it's so good. Yeah, and I just love yeah getting some of those spicy harmonies right at the end. Yet there's something yeah. weirdly hopeful, and I think it's just because uh, the specific keys that that you mm-hmm. know parallel sound is evoking ends up having this sort of bright 
feeling almost on the sharp side yeah, of the circle of fists. it's definitely not just creepy. There's other emotions that are happening simultaneously with this yeah. Jack, aren't there? And it's what I love is like when you can have a piece that's this essentially minimal, like it's just, it, it really yeah. is. It's a baseline with really cool groove. I mean, the, the implications <laughs> of the rhythm section are really what give this track shape. But as far as most of the pitch material, it's literally a series of arpeggios for a pretty basic chord progression. Now, wouldn't change a thing about but it. that's what's cool is it's like when you put all of these elements together there are layers of emotion there's multiple feelings simultaneously you really do get the sense of um the high stakes the dread of uh you know whether it's an epic battle that's about to ensue or the the kind of feeling of climactic horror you can sense yeah. dracula's presence in those early kind of minor chord shifts yet by the end you do feel this sense of tension but also empowerment of you know it it still is motivating the player this isn't music right. that's meant to discourage it doesn't have that sort of like depressing tragedy feeling you know it's it's motivatingly creepy <laughs> yeah it's really really weird that they were able to and impressive they were able to achieve that so we're going to play one ending track today and it's the last thing we're going to play from two before we move on to three it's a requiem ending You guys are listening to A Requiem, which is one of the ending themes from Castlevania II, Simon's Quest. Will, I want to pick your brain here a little bit about how they were able to achieve this really authentic classical writing on the NES. Uh, to me, as someone who has just studied a little bit of, of classical writing, not nearly as in-depth as you have, what is your takeaway here? I mean, do you think that they were able to have a good balance of being authentic to, to that era while also making something that worked for the NES. Absolutely. And I think, you know, they're really not alone in this in incredible uh, sort of balance of all of these different elements. I mean, it, it, it's yeah. very similar to whether it's the music from Final Fantasy or Link to the Past, that sort of ability to evoke aspects of classical music just in bits and pieces here or there without completely surrendering the genre and the style that's been established. I think yeah. it's something that's easier to do with chip music because you have these square waves and triangle waves unifying everything. So you can kind of take these bigger swings and fully maybe commit to like, this is clearly more of a classical pastiche than yeah. almost all the music we've but, heard so you far you know, today. and you're alluding to it, Will, but it's not just classical. I mean, when the drum right. beat comes in, you know, it's it's completely contemporary. It's 80s. Right. It's, well, and it's not I like, love that balance. It isn't just a 
purely classical piece with a drum beat in it. It's like s- yeah. some of the the rhythmic movement. There's a lot of counterpoint in this track, and the the chord progressions, the harmonies, and the counterpoint make it feel distinctly classical. It's very fugal, but there's there's syncopation to like what the bass and drums are doing that is very not classical. And you I know think what I hear, Will? Blend- if- if Simon's Quest was like an animated movie that came out and this music scored the movie, what I am hearing is is this entire ensemble wouldn't have changed. The whole piece of music would have been this orchestral rock ensemble. Maybe it started off with piano. Right. Maybe you have violin. But eventually you're going to have electric bass. You're going to have drums. Like It's just a really effective uh, combination of those different styles. And yeah, I would. that's kind of what I'm hearing in my head. Yeah, I mean, I think... To me, what this does, this sounds more like something like Bohemian Rhapsody, like in the way yeah. that that sounds classical, but it's still rock. It's like rock classical. Um, it's very authentic. Like I'm, it's not. I'm not diminishing, you know, Freddie Mercury's ability to do an authentic thing, but there's a particular flavor to when rock or pop musicians try to evoke, particularly like Baroque era or you know. 17th 18th century music um there there's a particular flavor that i think a lot of wonderful songwriters try to bring out and i i'm getting a lot of that in i'm definitely getting that too well guys i couldn't be more excited to move on to my favorite score in the series it's castlevania 3 dracula's curse and i know i know we're playing the nes version some of you (laughs) definitely will prefer the vrc6 version but I gotta say, overall, I prefer the NES version. I, think I mean, it's there's a charm. We've, we've, a little as stronger. We've, as we've talked about today, there is a real magic to yeah, and this we have to, particular you know, set of sounds. Keep going with it because we want to compare what we've already heard today. So let's start off with Prelude from Castlevania Three: Dracula's Curse. <laughs> listening to a masterpiece of video game music this is prelude from castlevania 3 and we have an entire new set of composers that somehow were able to take everything that was effective about the soundtracks to one and two and just crank it up 
<laughs> we have Hidenori Maizawa, Jun Funahashi, Yuki Morimoto, and Yoshinori Sasaki. Those were the people that worked on three. And wow, I mean, we've said a lot about Prelude and how incredibly immersive and imaginative this is. It's beautiful writing. It's just a beautiful piece of music. It happens to be, you know, on the NES, but it's a beautiful piece of music, period. It's a gorgeous piece of music. I mean, the the modulation structure of it the the different key relationships that it has and just the overall mood progression like this final section where it it tugs on your heartstrings and it actually reminds me of yeah. a lot of end credits music like particularly hip Tanaka totally. stuff whether it's the credits of kid icarus or metroid that sort of sound again we get the implication in yeah da, 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 that sort of descending well, but in this case not thing, a baseline more the interval i don't think we've ever mentioned it because we've never followed this or we've never preceded this track with a requiem but we did today so both these track end in almost an identical way. How interesting is that? Right. I think that's a really good point. I mean, having a piece of music that has kind of an ending to it is a rare thing um, on the NES. What's cool about the way this actually works is like it does loop back into itself um, in the actual like NES title screen sense sure. because if you don't press start, it'll keep... Uh, going Which, back why and wouldn't around. you press start when you but, hear the piece end <laughs> well, there's so many little technical things about this that i want to highlight i mean in addition to the harmonies that are so gothic and creepy and moodful i mean the yeah. mood that this piece of music uh evokes is i think it's so technically impressive for the nes but part of that goes beyond the writing itself and it goes to the implementation one of the things that i'm always just that um, I'm always so amazed by is that uh, you were talking about this earlier, Carl. It's like when you go from something that's using the two squares with the delay effect to then one of the squares abandoning its delay mm -hmm. and now doing a counter melody, or in this case, really a melody. Um, yes. What's cool is that they're able to disguise that transition by having the first the channel that's doing the arpeggio, it's actually imitating the delay itself. So exactly. what sounds like bum 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 is actually it's it's doing it's the ingenious. delay within one it's channel. Except ingenious. they're changing the volume. So like every other one is at you know, let's say it's like uh, 12 out of 15 possible, you know, dynamic units. Um, and the every other 16th or 32nd note or however you want to think about it would be like five out of 15 dynamic units. And so what you end up hearing it as two distinct ideas, you hear it as yeah. one line and that same line being delayed or offset by an eighth note. Just and the sense of genius. imagination that they pulled off <laughs> on the NES is, oh my God, it's absolutely incredible. Well, let's go from that to probably the best track in the entire series. So a one-two punch, unlike any other, this is Beginning.
You guys listening to one of the Mercado Bros' favorite pieces of VGM. It's beginning, and it was interesting. When we were arranging this and trying to figure out how do we condense, uh, you know, and keep some of the VRC6 ideas and harmonies, but really at the end of the day, I think we were, uh, in our version uh, of, you know, our cover of this, we are a lot more faithful to this NES version, and we're listening to it and we're like, man... Everything that you need is here yeah. in the NES version. And I, I love the VRC6 version of Beginning, don't get me wrong. Um, but it's so incredible that they're able to convey as much as they did with this track on the NES. It's, it's so full, so busy, so rocking. One of the best pieces of NES music of all time. Yeah, I mean, that opening riff is... I mean, that's the thing. These Castlevania tracks, they need iconic opening riffs in addition to their central kind of A theme and they or got melody. Them. And I mean, this is one of the best there is. And in terms of the implementation, there's something so cool that happens that I love is the triangle leaps from its initial bass note yeah. way up into the treble register to do that sort of oblique motion. It's so powerful. It's doing this middle voice but because of how resonant and full of overtones that triangle channel is it really competes with the squares up in that register and it allows you to feel the implied harmony i think yeah. in a much stronger way than if you kept it in the bass register and if you had just the two squares doing that it's able to right. feel really full and pack this huge impact the one thing that i always like to shout out with this nes version is the drum implementation and i guess you could say writing if anyone has uh, any software where you can isolate the NES channels, definitely listen to this, just the drums. It's really impressive drumming, NES drumming here. Uh, I love the Tom fills. It's just classic stuff. So good. Something that the series does that I love so much is when you have sort of two elements um, this happened once in uh, Simon's Quest. I forgot to call it out, but I think it was in the Mansion track um, where it's like you have these two elements and one is clearly the focal point. Maybe it's just the melody. It's like a pure tune. And the other one is doing some sort of little, you know, arpeggiation or some counterpoint in there. Um, yet the balance of the two elements starts to shift and slowly what was the accompaniment what was the accompanying um element is now taking over and right. that's the quality that makes this music i think not just feel classical because that's sort of an aspect of how counterpoint works where your ear is bouncing between different melodic ideas but it also accomplishes what we've been talking about this whole day which is making the limited technology feel bigger and more lush and expansive than it really is well and then also we've talked about this a lot today is the combination of those different influences and this is the strongest example of that in video game music in my opinion is combining so many different influences into one thing that becomes its own thing at the end of the day uh, again it's it's not monster dance it's monster rock all right totally let's move on to the next track that we're going to play from castlevania 3 it's clockwork uh, parentheses block two
guys are listening to Clockwork. Outstanding writing, one of my favorites on this score. Yeah, there's so much meat to the bone that these composers were able to create and craft in Castlevania III. Uh, it's, it's really one of my favorite scores, period. You know, not just talking about the series, not just talking about NES. It's, it's so imaginative and fun. I love that it rocks. It's very beautiful, great harmonies. It's so expressive. Gets your imagination going in a way that is one of the things that inspired us to start this podcast, to be honest, is how imaginative old video game music from the 8 and 16-bit era is. And to this day, I mean, listening to this, my imagination still gets fired up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, evoking classical music is a great (laughs) tool in a series like this that's trying to bring you to the past and trying to put you in this you know european setting and i think in this case it's like the 15th century or something um so we've talked also will and and i know that you love this too is it's a really smart choice for this limited channel hardware right because you have a lot of these arpeggios and these outlining of chords and you can take one channel and you can basically imply a a big chord with that and that's one of the most effective things about it but it, clockwork in particular is a piece of music that is it's at the level of like Bach I mean it's so sophisticated uh, because so it, expressive. Isn't, it isn't seriously it isn't simply arpeggiating triads every single note is carefully chosen and it's 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 beyond being melodic I mean it sounds like one of Bach's inventions or it ends up feeling it's not quite a fugue it it's it's a piece of music that's sort of hard to describe what it is because it has yeah. a simple bass line, yet the interaction between the elements is really compelling and evokes um, very sophisticated harmonies. But in addition to you know the harmonic and melodic components of this track, you also have really cool rhythmic stuff, the sense of hemiola, where for the most part this track is in four, but in that final mm-hmm. section it seems to go to three, um, uh, particularly that final section that has those um, more simple arpeggios because the most of it is in four but then you have one two three one two three and just a little bit of that rhythmic surprise is so effective in this track i mean because again it kind of slightly pushes you off your off your balance in a really effective way and that's what this level is about this stage is one of the more difficult stages in the whole game because it involves some treacherous platforming and uh Castlevania is uh yeah. they're great games but they're not necessarily um made for platforming and jumping precision uh the jumping mechanics in Castlevania uh, at least in these three titles leave a lot to be desired um they're any sort of platforming stage like this um is going to be incredibly frustrating and and treacherous uh, in the Castlevania series, and I think Man, this if it music wasn't for this perfectly music. fits that. <laughs> oh, so many more people would give up. This is Mad Forest now. This is Block Three, and we're returning to the world of Monster Dance in this track. Let's take a listen to Mad Forest.
You guys listening to Mad Forest. Will, I never really mentioned this on the podcast before, but do you agree with me that this could be a Mega Man series track? I've always felt that. This has always felt Mega Man-ish mm-hmm. to me. No, you're and totally right. It's it's just so good, so fun, so rocking and dancing. Part of it is, I mean, it still has that gothic quality in that going to the It does, the, but there's some the Mega Man series music Dominant that has Seven. that too. Yeah, uh, part of it is is the bass line um, where it lands on sort of the natural sixth and then going to the flat sixth. That's something yeah. that Takashi Tatsuki well, also, starting with that riff, I mean, that opening riff really reminds me of Mega Man Yeah, it Man has too. this sort of concise element that um, does definitely evoke the NES Mega Man games, particularly 2 and 3. Um, and also some of the, in terms of the instrumentation, this reminds me more of like Mega Man 3. Yeah. Um, but it also is so darn Konami opening with that sort of monophonic riff. I feel like right. the, the track in Mega Man that does that... Um, I can't remember which stage name it is, but it starts with that singular riff where all of the channels are playing it in unison. I feel like that's more of a rarity in Capcom music. To me, that's mm-hmm. such a Konami sound because Konami, yeah. There's honestly, a couple of different Mega Man tracks that do it too uh, later on in the NES series as but well. Like, but I mean, I love Capcom. Like, don't get me wrong. I think I love Capcom music maybe more than Konami music. But when it comes to implementation on the NES and when it comes to authentically capturing oh, Oh yeah, no, you're, you're so music. right. There's nothing Konami in the, the Mega Man series the like this. I I say overall the energy of it, something about the energy of it reminds yes. me. Like if this totally. were a Castlevania, or sorry, if this were a Mega Man stage, it would be one of the best <laughs> stage themes in the series. Uh, it's just so good. Yeah, I mean this is this kind of track is one of the things that really inspired me when I was doing that Doctor Acula's malevolent totally, man. Where it's that sort Absolutely. of like there's you get a, a whiff of the sort of gothic horror. But it's still just fun it's a and dance catchy party. and poppy. And what I enjoyed about working on that is it was kind of like if Capcom made a Castlevania. I mean, technically sure. we do have that because that's sort of what Ghosts and Goblins is. But it was kind of like Mega Man meets Castlevania. And I think you're right, Carl, that this Mad Forest track sort of and has that And shout out feeling. to that. If you guys haven't checked out Will's album, definitely do so. It's available. Is that on? Is that one on your Bandcamp or the Super Mercado Bros Bandcamp? Um, I think it's on mine, but you can find all of that on our Super Mercado Brothers Bandcamp page, and then you can go to Mercado yes. Records and find our individual stuff. But. Let's move to a very creepy piece of music next. This is Deadbeat, which is parentheses Block Four from Castlevania Three.
You guys are listening to Deadbeat. I wanted to include this. It's really hard to to have. I think we're doing what is it? Six or seven? One, two, three, four, five, seven tracks only today from Castlevania Three. And there's so many great ones. So it was hard to to pick. I wanted to do this one because I think it gets a little bit less love than some of the other bangers on Castlevania Three. And I've always loved this melody. It's very devious. A lot of personality. Will said it kind of felt robotic-y to him, right? Yeah, the, the specific quality of the melody that it's like devious, but also a little cute and has this and it's sort of like winking, child, yeah, folk song sort of quality. Da, 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 da. I, I don't know. That I, I a great love piece. this track, though. It's so well arranged, and the opening particularly has great implementation because it feels genuinely right? creepy. It gives me like Metroid Fusion kind of vibes. Like it's it. it what's cool about Castlevania Three is it's it's just starting to get to that point where it's almost earnestly scary. Where like yeah. the the original game was maybe spooky, and the second game is like maybe spookier, and the third. game game it, again it's still in that sort of tongue-in-cheek pop rock sound but we're getting much more authentic with a lot of the classical yeah. influence and when it comes to the more dissonant moments and the moments that feel more like score i think they're getting way closer to you know what they would be able to do on the super nintendo with super castlevania 4 i mean to me and and some of this happens in tracks that we're not playing today uh but castlevania 3 is no doubt in my mind the peak musically of the series it's just yeah. the balance that they struck there are tracks that are full-blown creepy and and just really earnest and serious and beautiful there are dance party tracks there are prog rock tracks everything you could ever want in this gothic horror world i think that you get in castlevania 3 so yeah. can't speak highly enough of the soundtrack let's play aquarius which is another absolute banger from castlevania 3 guys are listening to Aquarius Block 6 from Castlevania through Dracula's Curse. One more time, we have Meizawa, Funahashi, Morimoto, and Sasaki that worked on this score. And Will, I want to talk a little bit about how the two channels work together uh, and how how fun it was for us to, to learn these two parts and the interaction, when they harmonize, when they splinter off. To me, it's just it's just such amazing NES writing, and it's so fun to perform this one. Yeah, I mean, I think Aquarius is an example of a track that, to me, the the basic the lead sheet of this is not all that impressive. The lead sheet of the main melody is just seems sort of like standard fare. But this is a track that is all in the details, like the arrangement of this 
brings it to life with these colorful harmonies. And yeah, I, it's it's just it blows my mind that this was possible. And what's cool is it's like you can say it's classical because they had to use this strict three part writing, but they're blatantly avoiding like any of the common practice rules of parallel yeah. intervals and how different dissonances are approached. That second voice is all these weird angular movements. It's so weird, but it's so cool. But it's brilliant too because it's like you're able to evoke these really sophisticated harmonic moves. And the thing that is most impressive about it is it never sticks out and feels awkward. It's like your no. ear is just able to track the top line, yet you feel the harmonies by what the ba 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 that weird inner voice. Yeah, da, 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 da. Like that, it's just interesting because in classical music, normally you want to give the middle voices, the alto and tenor, the most oblique motion or the most kind of staying on one pitch, which is why often the joke with you know alto lines is that they just sing one note for the entire piece. But that's the right. way that classic four-part chorale writing is supposed to work. But when you're on the NES, you don't necessarily have that luxury because the <laughs> lowest voice needs to be the bass voice meaning that it's probably going to play the root of all of those chords yet it also needs to in this case sound like an electric bass part so it's sort of spoken for as far as how rhythmic and nimble it can yeah, be so that true. puts all of the harmonic pressure on that middle <laughs> voice and it's this really cool thing because it's able to balance itself out a lot of times it is playing these counter melodies that very briefly take your focus away from the melody yet it's balancing doing those kinds of responsibilities with all of these really angular Yeah, check that pitches. out. If anyone is interested in composition and arrangement, check out the individual channels of Aquarius, and it, it is so educational and inspirational. Uh, guys, we're playing you out with Riddle from Castlevania 3, which is one of the best tracks in the whole series. I love this track, and I wanted to share some really exciting news. Uh, me and Joe shared this on on our own social media and on our Discord this past weekend, but we thought this was a good time to share it on the podcast. Uh, Will, do you know do you know what I'm alluding to here? I think so. It's another album, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, Joe and myself, uh, we're having a baby. Yeah, everyone, there's going to be a Brueggemann Junior. <laughs> this is how you tell me coming live on the podcast <laughs> coming this December. So we are incredibly excited. A little bit nervous, but mostly very Aww. excited. I'm so excited for you guys. Uh, this is yeah, I I can't believe it. It's another generation it's be of Mercado. <laughs> can't believe you're going to be a father, man. That's it's pretty be wild. Crazy. It's very surreal. Has not you, so fully sunk in. Are yet. you going to be a dad with a podcast? Like, uh, have you fully <laughs> dad prepared cast? what that's going to be like? There's a lot that I probably haven't fully prepared. So yeah, <laughs> definitely more thoughts, more conversations to be had. But we just wanted to share that with all of you. That really exciting news. So I'm sure we'll shoot the breeze more about it in the, in the coming weeks and months. I'm so glad that you finally told people because I just want to talk about it a lot. Yeah, it was but... hard. Yeah, it was definitely hard to wait for sure. But yeah, we did a pretty pretty cute uh, announcement of it with a, a photo of Luna <laughs> reading a book that I photoshopped with uh, how to be a, <laughs> how to be a big sister. So and Luna is your puppy and she's mm -hmm. what is she like one year old she's one year and some change i think she's one year and two months and so this summer the big goal for us this summer is to really get her a hundred percent ready for prime time when it comes to training so oh, i think she's gonna that's the goal 
she'll step into those big sister shoes. I think so. Well, guys, we're going to play you out with Riddle. Thanks so much for listening. This was such a fun trip down memory lane. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm Will Brueggemann. Have a great week, everybody. Peace out. <laughs>